Morning, everyone. We are starting a new series right now, today, this morning, called Jesus' Reality uh, through the book of John. And we've broken up, broken up into two different series. Uh, part one will be chapters 1 through 11, called Jesus' Reality. And that will take us all the way up till Easter. And then chapters 12 through 21, after Easter, in a series that we're calling Life with God. So obviously, that's not a lot of time in the book of John. Typically, churches spend like five years in this book. Um, we're just going to go through it at a different pace, but trust that you guys are spending time in it. What I want to do is give you guys a couple of prefatory comments before we get started. Okay? Uh, prefatory comments. The first one is this. Uh, this sermon will be a bit more teaching-oriented. Um, so please, if you can, this morning, listen uh, carefully and thoughtfully. Take notes if you have to, if you guys do that. Uh, please refer back to this teaching and John's prologue throughout this series because the opening of John's gospel is the narrative key to the entire book. Um, one staff member this last week ref, uh, made uh, a, a, um, a, like a, likened it to the opening sequence of the movie Up. Like if you've ever seen that movie, it's like the saddest, most heart-wrenching four minutes of uh, any movie ever, ever made. If you miss that, you don't have any context for the rest of the movie at all. The movie's not as funny, the movie's not as sad, not as heartwarming, not as fulfilling. You need that for the rest of the movie. That's what John's prologue is. You need this to understand the rest of the book. So, refer back to um, both th this, this chunk of scripture throughout the series, and then if you need to, this, this teaching itself. The second thing I'll say is this. There are two ways to go about understanding scripture. Ba I mean, there's many ways, but two basic ways. Um, you reading it, and it reading you. Or you studying it, and it studying you. One is called exegesis, um, where we study to learn its original voice, what it originally said to the original audience, what it's saying. The other can be called uh, revelatory or meditative, where we become listeners of the scripture. More than trying to discover the message, we allow the message to discover us. We sit under its power, its authority, its way of speaking even today. And I will say this, in this series, actually always, but especially in this series, we need both. I will do my best to try to exegete or study and teach the book rightly as we study the book on Sundays. I'm asking you to give yourself to the text, to read it and to reread it, to allow it to seep into your heart, to allow this book to seep into your bones. We will be practicing this together um, you might hear the word uh, or the phrase lecto divina thrown around in your community group. Do not be alarmed. It's an ancient Christian practice of reading and thinking about the text of the Bible to allow God to speak to us through it. So we will be doing both. We hope to do, I hope to do, God willing, write exegesis. On Sunday, taking this book, what it means, giving it to you as we study it in community groups. We also, we also need to sit under it. We need careful study and we need illumination. We need God to speak to us today. So we'll be doing this together as a community. And the whole reason, the whole goal is that this book would bring us life. At the very end of John's writing, he says in, in John chapter 20 verse 31, these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's what we hope to do. We hope to find Jesus throughout the book of John and then may the words of this book and the meaning of this book and the hope of this book so saturate us that it brings us life. That's our hope. Cool? All right. John 1. You guys there? Turn there. Now, the book of John might be one of the most 
quoted out of context books of the entire Bible. And I will do my best to teach what this book means, what it teaches about Jesus, and what it might mean for our church to live into it together. So before I even read it, may God help me and may God help us. Amen. This is probably, I I say this a lot, but I'm not lying this time, the coolest section of scripture. Look at, just, just listen to this. Ready? John 1, and we'll pray. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as witness, as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, and the world, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as, I, as we approach this text, we're, I'm really humbled. We're really humbled by it. We send, sit under its, its, its weight, its power, its, how it's changed uh, both um, secular thought after it was written, how it's changed biblical thought. And we ask God that it would change us. We ask that there be changing power in these words today. That spirit, you would testify to its truth. That you would convince us and convict us. In ways in our own lives where we need to align in faith in Christ. God, that you would give us grace to do so. And so I ask for humble hearts and humble minds. We ask that you would speak to us. And Lord, all of us together, we know that Faith is such a precious, fragile, and sacred gift, and we ask that you would grant it to us. Grant us the eyes of faith to see Christ as the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Like Christopher Nolan does in his movie Interstellar, John, the writer of this book, starts by playing with time. And he does so with probably a lot less plot holes than Interstellar, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Other evangelists describe Christ born in time. If you've ever read the book of Matthew or or Luke, they they start 
by framing Jesus' birth in time. They say this, the ti- in the, at the time of Caesar Augustus or at the time of King Herod, they fix Jesus' birth in time. Mark, in his gospel, does the same thing where he fixes Jesus' ministry in the time of around John the Baptist. All three are set in time explicitly. John starts his story a lot further back than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. He sets his story back to the beginning of time. Maybe you can even say he starts his, his prologue, his book, before time itself. He takes us all the way back to pre-existence. John starts his book with pre-existence. Maybe a little like Terrence Malick does in The Tree of Life, where you get these glimpses of time before time, and the universe coming together, or however that happened, however he says it happened. That's kind of what John does here. John begins his book like another book of the Bible. And it's intentional. And if we started this book, you're like, oh, that sounds a lot like Genesis. It's supposed to sound a lot like Genesis. Genesis 1-1 starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 starts his, his letter or his book the exact same way, the exact same opening phrase of Genesis, John uses as his opening phrase. It says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning. In the beginning. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the word. Now, there are a lot of implications. Let me just pull out a couple. First, Genesis starts with a divine doing. Genesis starts with a divine doing. It's God who is assumed in Genesis 1. God's not explained in Genesis 1. This is very important. It's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you're like, who is God? That's not what this, you keep reading the story if you want to know that. This here is about how this God created everything. There are a couple things that we're not told of in Genesis 1. We're not told how God created. Like, how long did it take? Did he use evolutionary means? Was it 10,000 years ago? Was it 14 billion years ago? We're not told. It's like the writers of the scriptures, like, well, we leave that up for science to figure out. This is about who did all this. We're not told who God is at the beginning of Genesis. We're so, it, God is assumed at the very beginning of Genesis. What we're told is, who did all of this? Who put all this here? And the answer is, in Genesis 1, God. Well, who is God? Keep reading. That's the implication. Genesis starts with divine doing. God, divine, created. Divine doing. John starts with divine being. John says, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning... He talks, he goes all the way back and goes, let me talk about the divine being. John goes behind and beyond creation to who and beyond creation to who preceded it or what was beyond that. Who is this creator? And John talks about essence. John starts his book like this. Let me show you, let me pull the curtain back and show you who is the one who was behind all of creation. Uh, D.H. Lawrence, a poet and novelist, has this quote, famous quote. I love this quote. He says this. He says, water is H2O. Hydrogen two parts, oxygen one. But there is also a third thing that makes it water, and nobody knows what that is. I love that quote. He's a poet, and poets still have, like, still see mystery in our world, and I love it. John is writing to make that known. Okay, we we can understand and observe the world, but there is something that keeps it all going or connected, and we don't know what that is. And John's writings like, oh, who's holding this universe together? Who holds water together? Who is responsible for its order, its beauty, its function, its source, its intricacy? Who put it all here? 
I am writing to make that known. John starts with divine being. The word is responsible for everything. The word is responsible for creation. And I am writing this book to make him known. So actually, the beginning of John is a recreation story. Genesis is a creation story. John is a recreation story. And that's the question from Genesis chapter 3 on. In the Bible, as the Bible tells the story of the history of the world, the question from Genesis chapter 3 on is who is going to restore paradise lost? Who is, who will recreate the world that humanity is bent on destroying? Who is going to set everything right? Who is going to bring back shalom or peace? Who's going to do that? And that's the question that hangs there from Genesis 3 onward. And John is saying at the very beginning of his book, the creator himself is going to. Now, you might have a, a problem with me saying um, that this world is created. Now, if you're in here, you're like, wait, you're talking about how this world's created. You, you might think that science has answered that question and that your, the findings of science are incompatible with the faith. Um, and so you wrote, you wrote me off at the very intro. You're like, oh my gosh, you're basing this whole thing on that, then I'm not listening. Well, listen, stop. You don't have to, you don't, you, I don't think that um, science is incompatible with faith. Francis Collins, a former atheist who became a follower of Jesus, was the head of the Human Genome Project that mapped human DNA um, as a Christian. He is now the director of the National Institutes of Health, but probably you might know him from the Colbert Report. He's been on several times. He's actually one of the guys that at Colbert's last episode, and everybody comes out singing and dancing, he's like one of those guys that comes out dancing, and it's really weird to go, all these famous people, and then like Francis Collins is doing this thing. Anyway. He says this, a man of science and a man of faith. I can't imagine how nature, in the case of the universe, could have created itself. And the very fact that the universe had a beginning implies that someone was able to begin it. And it seems to me that had to be outside of nature. So this is as someone who has studied, who has studied the intricacy of our DNA and has studied the vastness of our universe. And as he observes science, he's like, there's no way in the world... That this could have, the, the beauty of it, the intricacy of it, the order of it, that it could have created itself. And it had to be created. And it had to be created from something outside of nature or someone outside of nature. And I would add, I'm no one to add this, but I, will add, I would add outside of time. And the thing outside of nature and outside of time, John writes, is Jesus. He has entered time and he has entered nature. See, what Genesis 1 is, is God at work in creation. In John... Jesus is God at work again. But he's at work disclosing himself to creation. God's at work in creation in Genesis 1. and John 1, God is at work again in Christ disclosing himself to creation. Now the way that we know that this is what John is saying is that John uses the word, word. So in the beginning was the word. Now that word in Greek, I won't use that much Greek in this, but this, one, this word's really important. Um, this word in Greek is the word logos. Okay, it's a very, very important word. Because this word is important both to uh, a Jewish mind, the way that, that John writes his book, connecting it to the Jewish Bible, but this is also a huge Greek word as well and has Greek cultural, at that time, implications as well. Luke Ferry, who wrote the book A Brief History of Thought, that I quoted, I think during Easter or something like that, um, 
he writes in his book, and this is like a, a philosopher who's not a believer in Christianity. He writes a book about, um, I, like a, a small, like maybe 180-page book on the um, philosophical thought, all of it, the history of it. And he writes in a small book, great, I commend it to you. He says that what John writes here in his prologue in John 1, changed the history of thought forever. He's not, he's not a believer. He's like, what John did here changed thought and the way that humans think. And he changed it forever in what he said. And surveying through all philosophy, he says this, there is nothing better as we face the world and face death than what John writes here about the Lagos. So first, let's talk about the Jewish implications of this. Why is this word so important? Why does John open like this? Genesis 1. Let me read this to you. We did a series in Genesis a while back. But let me just read this part to you and connect it and why this is so masterful, what John does. In the beginning, John, this is Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. So you have darkness. You have God. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Okay, so keep that on the screen. This is what you have here. Here are the, here are the, the players. You have God. You have Spirit. And you have God says or God's word. Now here's the thing. When you talk, wind comes out of your mouth. Or breath comes out of your mouth. Right? If you've ever talked, you know that some people have you know, more potent uh, wind than others, more important breath. Um, that word wind, breath, spirit is, are all the same words in Hebrew. It's the Hebrew word uh, ruach. Even when you say it, ha, like a lot of breath comes out of your mouth. That same word. So here's, here's what you have. You have God, you have breath and word. All right? You guys get that? God, breath, and word, or spirit and word, or wind and word. So when you speak, wind comes out of your mouth. So in Jewish thought, this is in the Jewish mind, um, how can a transcendent, holy God be different, other, unique, completely separated from the world, but active within the world at the same time? God is holy, he's unique in all creation, he is separated from time and space and everything, but in Jewish thought, how can God, transcendent, holy God, now communicate or, or be active within the world. And some, in, 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 in Jewish thought, some said that it was by his breath or his word. God communicated to us. God has interacted with us. God has made himself known through this thing called his spirit or his breath or his word when he speaks. And this idea is developed throughout the Jewish Bible. It starts in Genesis 1, but then it carries over. There are some peaks and there are some valleys. Let me show you a couple peaks. In Psalm 33, we read this in our call to worship today. It says this, for the word of the Lord, okay, God's word, is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. So it, not just speaking of the Lord here, but God's word as a personification, he. Um, uh, the wisdom literature does this too by personifying a wisdom as being there in creation. And he was there from the very beginning, personification of God's Word. And then it goes on in verse 6 in Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By their starry host, the, their starry host by the, look at it, see, breath. Or spirit, or wind of his mouth. That same idea carried over again. His word, his spirit, his breath. How does God interact 
with the world through his word. Isaiah 55, it gets a little bit more clear. Isaiah 55, the bigger picture here is that, that God, no one knows the ways of God. God's ways are way above our ways. And then it goes into this. Isaiah says, or this is God saying through Isaiah, as the rain and the snow came down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's word. By his word he creates. By his word he reshapes. By his word he warns. By his word he heals. By his word he restores. By his word. That would have been so potent. That would have been so available um, in a Jewish mind. So look what John does. Go back to John. John 1. In the beginning was the word. Now, if you have all this history, you're like, yeah, he was in the beginning. It was in the beginning. And the word was with God. Yes, they would have been with you. And the word was God. They would have even been with you then. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. It was God, but distinct from God, the way that God has related to the world. But, and this would not have been a huge leap at all. God's word is God. It's how he created. But this, verse 14, this And the word became flesh. This is where they would just like thrown things or something. This is where it's, this is, wait, 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 wait. You're not saying it's personified. You're saying it's realized. You're saying that the metaphysical became physical. Yes, the word became flesh. This thing, this part of God has become flesh. God has become flesh and made his dwelling. That word is tabernacle. This is the way that in, in, Jewish, um, in the Jewish Bible, God had made himself known, was in a tabernacle or tent, and his presence dwelled there. And what John is saying is that this word that is God became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. We're not really allowed to see, but now we've seen his glory. And the glory of the one and only Son who came for the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God who is outside of time stepping into time who is outside of creation taking on created order to make the timeless, uncreated God known to us. Now, you might be here and think that my sermon so far has to hinge on whether or not you believe that God created everything. Like, well, I don't believe that God created everything. Well, it has hinged on the fact that God created everything, and John does a lot of work to make sure that we understand that. But John goes beyond that as well. You see, the word he uses, logos, was a very important word to Greek thought and Greek culture as well. The Logos was the impersonal, harmonious, and divine structure of the cosmos. In Greek thought, which would have been like secular thought today. They they called this word, the Stoics called it Logos. It, It was the impersonal, harmonious, divine structure of the cosmos. The Greeks believed, and they said the cosmos, the structure of the universe, was divine because it was perfect in its order, and it was rational. Because it was true, and therefore it was beautiful. The, 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 the marriage of the divine and rationality of the cosmos was called the logos. It was the marriage of these two thoughts. And we see it, and that's where we get the word logic. It, it, the, the Greeks said that the world universe makes sense. And it's beautiful, and it's perfect, and it's, and it's order, the way it's ordered. And you can know it, and it's, but it's divine, it's other. Greek called it the logos. 
And that word is not in our vernacular, but I think the idea still is. We call it different things. We might call it universal oneness or divine spark or balance. It's what we, um, and I think in secular San Francisco, it's what we meditate to get into. It's what we do yoga to try to align ourselves with. And we all do this in a prayer teaching we did a couple weeks ago. I, I talked about this. We all sense atheists or whatever, um, or believers or agnostic or just I'm spiritual. We all believe that there's something that, that, whether it's human decency or something, that connects everyone together. And it's our job to try to tap into that thing. See, this is the idea of Logos. See, the very fact that there's a thing a lot of people in SF try to tune in with. We try to become one with ourselves with it and then one with each other, whether it's through decency and order and then one with the earth through it. The very fact that there is a connection. If you've ever, ever taken a yoga class, they believe this completely. There is something that we can get into. We just have to get into it and to get into its flow. There is a flow. There is an energy. There is a spark that makes this universe make sense. There is something. Whether we don't believe in God whether we don't believe in any of that, even if it's science, there's something that connects everything. That is the idea in Greek of logos. There is something, and it's beautiful. They would go as far as to say it was divine. You might not say it's divine, but it's beautiful, and it connects everything and everyone. John takes that word, John takes this idea and says, that divine and personal force that holds the structure of the universe together, that you try to own to get into, whatever that is, that has become flesh. That thing, the thing that holds everything together, the thing that you try to tap into because you think you can, whatever that is, that has become flesh and moved into the neighborhood. John takes that word logos, that Greek understanding of that word, and he says that has become flesh. Luke Ferry, in A Brief History of Thought, said that this idea changed the history of thought forever. When John wrote his prologue, he said when he wrote these words, it changed the way that we think. And um, he actually goes through, he goes, let me, he go, in his book, secular book, he goes, actually, let me quote John, the prologue, and give you some of my, my, my thoughts on it. This is what a Greek mind would have thought. A Stoic Greek mind that believed in the Logos, a lot of people did then. This is what they would have thought if they read, 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 would have read John's um, prologue. So it's up on the screen. And his comments are in brackets, or in gray, I think. This is cool. In the beginning was the word, he writes, Logos. And the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. He writes, up to this point, all is well. And the Stoics would still be in agreement with John, especially um, with the notion that the Logos and the divine are one and the same reality. Okay, we're good. And the word became flesh. Things start to take the turn for worse, the worst here. This is where things get, get iffy. Like, what are you saying? And dwelt among us. Quite unacceptable. The divine has become man? As incarnated in Jesus, none of which makes sense to a Stoic. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Sheer madness for the Greek sages. The followers of Christ are now presented as witnesses of the transformation of the, word, the Logos word or Godhead into mankind or Christ, as if the latter were the son of the former. So as he's writing, he's like, okay, this is, we're with you. This, I agree that the Logos created everything and threw it. But when you said that the Logos became flesh, ah, you lost me. This is what a Greek mind, that foolishness. There's no way in the world. And what John does, he actually writes um, 
he takes their word and he pushes up against it. It would be like, I, I, this doesn't make sense. I don't even think this makes sense. I'll say it anyways. Like if, if like the thing in yoga became flesh. Just the weirdest thought. Like yoga became flesh. And what, you're like, what? Like a, like a super yogi guy? Like came, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that thing. The thing that you're going after in the thing that connects everything has become flesh. To make that ultimate reality known. To make the true living God known. To correct, to show who this God is. For the Hebrew, for the Jewish mind, to show that God in his creative ways has become flesh to show us who he is. To the Greek mind, this thing that connects everything has become flesh to show us the true way to God. That has become flesh. That thing that holds everything together. Now, this might freak you out because if the logos, the logos, this oneness, this spark is flesh and bone, we might want to tell someone, we might, we might, we might think, okay, if this has become flesh, there might be things that this, this logos become flesh wants to say to us. And he does. There is. You might be thinking, if... If it's true what John is saying, that this logos, this thing that connects everything together has become flesh, then he might want me to live. It might want me to live. God might want me to live in a certain way, and you would be right. And so many reject the logos. Many look at the logos and say, I reject it. Actually, that's in John's prologue as well. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome. Overcome can mean understood with mind or overcome with the hands. Like it could be like overcome by strangling it. And, and the word means both here, but the second has the strongest meaning. The light comes into the darkness, and the darkness tried to choke it out, but it couldn't. What this means is that darkness is hostile. When, when Christ the light, the true light, steps into the world that is dark... When the true pure light of life steps into the world, it's off-putting. Because we see ourselves for who we are in the light of God. And we want to shatter the light. We want to turn off the light. We notice who we are and we want it gone forever. But if you would have the courage to face Jesus. If you would have the courage to face the Logos made flesh. And allow this light to penetrate the deepest, darkest coldest, most dank places of your heart. You will find that this in this light is life and in this light is love. Um, I asked you, I don't know if you did or not, to watch the movie Interstellar. And the reason why I did was because I didn't want there to be any spoiler alerts. So if you haven't watched it, this is on you. <laughs> the movie is, let me Boil down the movie for you, okay? I'm not going to give too much away. You still have time to see it, whatever. But let me just give you the, the, the this is why everyone who watches, like, I thought it was a sci-fi movie, but it punched me in the stomach. Like, I cried through most of it. I'm not supposed to do, I didn't cry through Star Wars. This doesn't make any sense. The movie is basically about a daughter who lost her daddy. In the middle of the movie, she could not communicate with her dad. And, or she could communicate with the dad, I'm sorry, but she chose not to. Because she felt, the daughter felt abandoned and exiled and left alone in the world. 
to die. And so she was mad at her dad for leaving, for being exiled, being cut off from her dad. But the whole time, the whole movie, the dad could hear and see and was trying like mad because he loved her to communicate with his daughter. The whole movie, the whole movie is about a dad trying to communicate with his daughter. To try to tell her, to let her know, you're not alone, I see you, you're not alone in this world, and I'm trying my very hardest to save you. That's what the movie was about. It's about communication, when communication seems impossible. It's about how am I so separated from my daughter through time and space and everything, how do I communicate to her? It's impossible. And sci-fi makes it possible. The reason why I wanted you to watch the movie is because that movie is what the book of John is about. Jesus is the communication of God. Jesus is the language of God. Jesus is God making himself known. It's that bridge, that, that, that bridge, that chasm that no one could reach from God to man and Jesus going through that. Going through it. To make God known to us. Throughout the book, John tells a series of stories. There's many ways to read the book of John. One way is through all the encounters that Jesus has with people. And every single time Jesus has an encounter with people, they think they're encountering the human Jesus, but what they end up encountering is God. Every single time. Either whether they don't know it, like at the wedding feast, they're all partying, and they run out of wine, and then Jesus turns water into wine, and all of a sudden... They're in the middle of a messianic divine feast. They don't even know it. Or they do know it, and they look for him like Nicodemus. Nicodemus searches for him and asks him questions. But in the, all the while, Jesus is showing them that you actually came and saw, and what you need is God. You need a rebirth. That's what happens over and over again. So, every single person who encounters Jesus encounters God. And what John says in his prologue is that Jesus is, God, is the God of light and the God of love, the God full of grace and truth. And so Luke Ferry says in his book, what made Christianity and John's prologue change the world of thought was that this logos made flesh was actually love. And that's what changed it. That this logos made flesh, this thing, this, this thing that the Greeks thought held everything together, became flesh, showed us who God was, overcame sin and death and the devil, rose from the dead, and offers us this life because of love. He goes, that is what changed thought. So this is how he writes in his book. This is what he writes in his book. The personalizing of Logos changes all factors of the equation. If the promises made to me by Christ are genuine, and if divine providence takes me in hand as an individual, however humble, then my immortality will also in turn be personal. In which case, death itself is finally overcome, and not merely the fears it arouses in me. Immortality is no longer the anonymous and cosmic event proposed by Stoicism, but the individual and conscious resurrection of souls together with their glorious bodies. In this sense, it is love in God which confers its ultimate meaning upon this revolution affected by Christianity in relation to Greek thought. It is this new definition of love found at the heart of the new doctrine of salvation, which finally turns out to be stronger than death. What he's doing, don't go on to the next slide, what he's doing there 
He's trying to compare all the philosophical religions or all the philosophical ways of thought. And he's saying, what trumps everything is Christianity. And the reason why it changed it, because you overcame death. And what really overcame death was love. Why Logos became flesh was because God stepped into out of love for God so loved the world. And that world is not a word, word that's like all happy bliss. It's the world that's opposed to God, that wants to kill God. God so loved the world that hates him that he entered into it. That whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Luke Ferry says that that is the strongest thing going. And then he says this at the very end of his book, like two pages before the end of the book, this is what he says. He's not a believer. You might object that compared to the doctrine of Christianity, whose promise of the resurrection of the body means that we shall be reunited with those we love after death, a humanism without metaphysics is small beer. I grant you that amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compare with Christianity, provided, that is, you are a believer. He's not a believer. He says that. It's like this, this here, what John writes here, the logos made flesh to the Greek mind, to the, to the secular mind, is the best doctrine of salvation that's out there in human thought ever. Granted. If you believe. He goes, and that's the hardest part, isn't it? Belief. But John says the same thing. John said belief is hard. There are those that when Jesus comes into the world, they don't believe. Even his own people don't believe. He says this in verse 11. We read it. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him. To those who believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. John even says that it is hard to believe. How do I believe? I, if this is the best thing that there is, that, the, that God would be made flesh to show us out of love who he is, what do I do? The answer is believe. Well, now, you might be thinking this, and I promise this is where I close. How is Jesus God? If you noticed, none of these statements are qualified in John 1. John opens up his book by saying that Jesus is the Logos, made flesh, the Word of God made flesh. Um, later on, John the Baptist sees Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Doesn't qualify it, though. Just hangs there. Later on, um, Andrew sees Jesus and says, he's the Messiah. And he goes against his brother Peter. He's the Messiah. We met the Messiah. But he doesn't tell us how. And then Philip comes to follow Jesus. And he goes and gets his friend Nathaniel. And he's like, we found him. We found the one that Moses and the prophets have written about. Nathaniel has this like really snobby comment. Oh, because Philip says he's from Nazareth. Which is so funny. Well, we found God. And he's in Modesto. And he's like, what? How's that? That's exactly what it was, but like, if you could think of worse than that, if, if that's possible. If you think of worse. And that's what, that's what um, Philip says to Nathaniel. We found the one that Moses and the prophets talked about, and he's from Nazareth. And then Nathaniel has a snobby remark like, can anything good come from Nazareth? And then Philip says this, come and see. And what John does is his opening chapter of John. He makes all these statements that Jesus is God. He's God in flesh. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
He's Messiah. He's the one the prophets and Moses spoke about and wrote about. How do we know? Come and see. And it's our invitation. And the rest of the book is John showing that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the one that Moses talked about. He is the one the prophets promised. He is the Logos made flesh. He is God who has shown up to make God known and to make God available to us, that we can know God, that we can follow God, that we can worship God. The hardest thing, though, is belief. And that's a gift. And so as we close, I, I, I want to pray that God would, that you, that you would commit to saying, if this is true, God, I'll follow. And that you would come and see. If you're a skeptic in here and you're not a believer, that you would come and see that Jesus is God to make God known. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, despite all the whatever, um, that you're here, that you're in our midst, Lord, that you're the God that's with us, God. And um, I, I really sense that right now. So I pray as we move into time of communion and response, God, that, that we would believe, that we would place our hope in you and who you are, and God, that you would in the only ways that you know how, that you would reveal yourself to us. I pray for anyone who's skeptical right now, that has a million questions right now, but this, but that, but this, by your spirit, God, that you would begin to answer those, or you'd begin to sh- reveal who you are and say that that's the mystery of life. You might not ever know that. I pray for those who right now, I, I just, I know that there's all kinds of different people here from all kinds of different places, and I ask, Lord, that in every single individual way that you would, you would go right now by your spirit and make yourself known as the light of the world, as the lover of our souls, as the one who challenges us when we've been in rebellion, that God, that you go to those who know you but have rejected you, God, and as they get older, I pray, God, that you would, you would go to them gently but sternly, Lord. Open up a way, God, that we would come to believe in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.